Hey everybody, this is Round 6 MMA Talk, the fight after the fight, with me, your boy, Noah Petrie. I know, I know what you're thinking, another MMA podcast. I know, there's a lot of us out there, but if you like bold, unapologetic hot takes, a detailed, broken down view of the fight game, and of course, stomach-hurting comedy, well, come to the right place. What's up, everyone? This is episode 26 of R6 MMA Talk, the fight after the fight with me, your boy, Noah Petrie. Of course, we will be getting into UFC 280 and going over all the MMA news slash drama that happened this past weekend, going over how I think Calvin Cater against Arnold Allen would happen, and of course, uh, my hot take for the week. But again, guys, this is episode 26 of the Round 6 MMA Talk to Fight After the Fight podcast. And I'm just going to be jumping into UFC 280. So, UFC 280. Uh, first, dude, dude, there were so many fights in this card. It was fucking phenomenal and crazy. The prelims were kind of a dud, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I got to keep it 100 with you guys. The, the prelims was kind of a dud. It really was just kind of a dud. And it was a dud. For the fact that there really wasn't much finishes that were happening on the prelims. It was mostly going to decision. Now, the main card is really, really dramatic, and it was the exact opposite of the uh, the prelims there. But let me get into the prelims first. It was Nurmagomedov against Umar Gazayev. Umar Gazayev is a very good wrestler. He tends to have some you know gas tank issues, which I'm going to go over later on in the podcast. But Nurmagomedov, of course, cousin to Khabib. And I, we already know anyone within that region is going to be very good in regards to wrestling, especially Sambo-style type of wrestling. Amagazayev, very good at Sambo-style type of wrestling as well. So this was more of a hardcore delight. We're going to see how did one Sambo wrestler fare against the other Sambo wrestler. And what I really want to go over in this fight, of course, in that first round, I think Omar Zayev did very, very good. Um... Nurmagomedov was able to get him to the ground, but he went into a guillotine position, I believe. It was from half guard and didn't really go through. Now, after the first round for Magazayev, he looked extremely gassed. He looked very, very tired, which we we thought that might be an issue going into this fight because in his last fight, he gassed out after the first round as well. But what I really want to talk about is the controversy behind the knee. So, as you guys may know, Nurmagomedov hit Omar Gazayev with two illegal knees. So they were clinching up against the cage. Omar Gazayev had his hand down in a in a uh, in a position. So as Omar Gazayev was clinching him, Omar Gazayev had his hand down. He got hit with two illegal knees right to the head. And the referee paused the fight. Now, that same referee earlier in this fight card, the same thing happened in the, the women's fight. I forgot the two fighters' names, excuse me. But the same thing happened in the women's fight. They got hit with two illegal knee. One got hit with an illegal knee, and he took a point. But for this time, when, when Omar Gazayev gets hit with two illegal knees, no points taken. So it really didn't make any sense. It left a really bad taste in my mouth, to be, really bad taste in my mouth, to be honest with you. But at the end of the day... Nurmagomedov dominated the fight. Completely, 100% dominated the fight. Was able to take his opponent down in the second round at will. Was able to take Omar Gazayev down in the third round at will. Basically had his way with him. 
had you know ten plus minutes of control time, and Omar uh, Omar just looked absolutely gassed. But I just want to talk about really the issue with the illegal knee. If you take a point for illegal knee in that same card, you have to follow up and do the exact same thing if it happens again. You you have to have that kind of consistency because then you people could argue there's a recency bias and. You can argue that one illegal knee was worse than the other one, so one kind of warranted a point, but at the end of the day, it's still an illegal strike. And he did the illegal strike twice, not just one, but twice, back-to-back. So at that point, I think it warranted taking a point, but at the end of the day, it really didn't mean anything because he dominated the fight anyway. Now I want to be getting to... I'm going to be getting into Ozmir against Krylov. And dude, this fight was just fucking bananas. This fight was all over the place, man. And it, <laughs> in the first round, of course, uh, Ozdemir is a very, very, very good striker. One of the best in that division. You could argue the best in that division. Krylov is a guy who's been finishing everyone in round one. He was part Craig's training partner. He has a karate-based background. But what surprises me, actually, is his wrestling offense and how good it is. I'm going to be going over that um, later on uh, as I'm alluding to the fight. But he, in that first round, it, both men were just coming out the gate, just guns blazing, you know. Both men were just coming at it, which I'm, probably, I'm pretty surprised at because usually Ozdemir is someone who likes to take his time, who's very strategic in his striking. Krylov looked very loose, not loose in like, you know, a relaxed kind of way, but just looked like, Kind of sloppy in there, just a little bit. I'm going to be honest with you guys. He, he just looked a little too loose. And he was getting tagged. Every time he tried coming in, he would get tagged by Ostmir. And Ostmir had him rock pretty bad in that first round. He really rushed him to try to put him away, which I was shocked at, uh, at that as well. Because Ozdemir is the type of guy, as I said beforehand, he likes to take his time. He doesn't like to rush things. And in this fight, man, he was he was really trying to put his opponent away. In the first round, he almost did. You can warrant it a 10-8 round. Now, in the second round, was completely different. In the second round, Krylov was really piecing them up. Again, Krylov was, was looking very loose, too. He, he had a, a, a very loose kind of, you know, wobbly stance, if you will. He looked wobbly. He looked off. Um, but he was piecing Ozdemir up. He rocked Ozdemir. was able to take Ozdemir to the ground a number of times. What really shocked me was his wrestling prowess, man. Usually when someone has a striking-based background, especially in karate, they tend to not be good at grappling. But Krylov surprised me. He, he has a pretty good all-around game. Um, and what what another thing that really, um, that really, you know, uh, impressed me from Krylov is that he, even though he was exhausted, he kept going. Even though he was exhausted, he kept going. He visibly looked tired in that second and that third round, but he went out there and he put it on Ozdemir. So nothing but respect for Krylov, a very, very impressive victory, and I'm looking forward to see his next fight. I would say we should have him fight someone like Jamal Hill. I think that would be a... Uh, a very good next step for both fighters to see where they really are in the division. And most importantly, it would be a fun fight. Now I want to go over Muradov against Baralio. And Baralio is someone who I'm very high of. He has some of the worst tats in the UFC. Then again, there's not many good tats in UFC or MMA in general. So he kind of gets a pass there. He kind of looks like, you know, the little brother of, uh, of Paulo Acosta. But he's one of those fighters that can truly do it all. He can strike, he can grapple, he can wrestle. 
And he was he was someone that I was very high up prospect wise um, in the UFC. But in this fight, he one thing that I noticed that was happening quite a bit in this fight was the number of fouls both fighters were committing. Now in the opening sequence, Muradov says he got kicked in the sack, which he didn't. Um, at the end of the round, he said he got fish hooked, which I don't know. I didn't go back and rewatch the tape, but the referee didn't see it either. And then he was complaining about a bunch of other things. But then again, he always had his fingers in in Baraglio's face nonstop. Just fingers in the face, fingers around the eyes, which the referee had to warn him numerous, numerous, numerous times. I want to say at least over 10 times. At that point, at, at that point you got to take a point. If referees keep warning you about the same thing over and over and over again, you have to take a point. You know, you can't just give someone, can't keep giving the fighters warnings and warnings and warnings. That's not going to amount to anything. They're just going to keep doing because they think they're going to get away with it. Which, at this point, he did get away with it. But, at the end of the day, I do think Muradov did the better work overall. Grappling-wise, of course, he was able to take um, Baralio to the ground. Um, Baralio did land some good takedowns, but Muradov was able to reverse position and stay mounted him the entire time afterwards, which was very impressive. I do think striking-wise, not much striking really happened in the feet for that fight, but I do think Muradov overall did better work. Now, if a point was taken away, who knows how the, the fight would have fared out, But um, which at that point, it should have been taken away if all the fouls are committed. But at the end of the day, I think Muradov did very, very, very good. Now we have Brady against Bilal. So we're getting out of prelims and we're starting to go to the main card. And I've alluded to this many times in this podcast prior to this, which is when you have two grapplers, right? It tends to happen that it becomes a striking match. Both grapplers have respect for each other's, you know, grappling. And they don't want to go to that avenue. So they decide just to keep it on the feet. The wrestling kinds of can't tends to cancel out there. Which is exactly what happened in this fight. A good example of this is, is Kobe and, and Usman. But the exact same thing happened in this fight. Both men were just striking. Now, and I think what Bilal did very, very well is of course what he's known for was applying the pressure. He's more of a volume fighter. He's not known as a big puncher kind of guy. He's going to get you on volume. So he was just constantly applying the pressure and constantly, constantly, constantly putting the volume on Brady. Brady did land some really good flush counter strikes with Bilal just completely ate those punches and kept going. Which Bilal definitely has a chin on him. You don't want to take too many damaging shots like that because eventually that chin is going to go out no matter how good your chin is. But he, was, he did a very good job just applying that pressure on Brady. Now, I, I do think that the fight was stopped a little bit early, in my opinion, to be honest with you. I think it could have went on just a little bit more, but Brady was taking su- substantial damage up against the fence. Bilal was constantly hitting him, barraging him with punches. Brady did, did a fairly good job covering up on a lot of them, but he wasn't doing anything meaningful at, at that point. He was just covering up, trying to get out the way, and just constantly getting hit with punches. What really shocked me was... When Brady was rocked, his skill set is in wrestling. He's not a bad striker, but his skill set is most definitely in wrestling. Why didn't you resort to your wrestling? Why didn't you resort to your grappling? When you got rocked, 
why didn't you resort to grappling wrestling? Granted, I don't know if he would he would have been able to take down Bilal, but in grappling and wrestling and getting to the clinch, that would have preserved him more and helped him recover a little bit better. Even if he, he wasn't going to be, even if he didn't take down Bilal in that sequence, but he would have recovered better. And for some reason, he just didn't. He just kept blocking. And I don't understand why that was the case. Maybe it's a lack of fight IQ. Maybe it's his first time being in a situation and his mind didn't know how to react to it. Um, And the crowd playing a big factor. I'm not entirely sure. I really want to hear his point of view and how everything went down um, for him. But it's just something that I noticed that, honestly, I was a little confused over. I was a little shocked over. But very, very good win. Bible on Muhammad, very impressive win. Honestly, I didn't think he was going to win this one, but he did. I personally would love to see him against someone like a Rachmanov. I would love to see how that fight would play out. So we're out of the prelims, guys, and we're getting into the main card. First up, we have Darius against Gamrot. And honestly, it was pretty shocking how thorough of a beating it was. For Darius, Darius really had Gamrot's number, and Darius was a really big underdog in this fight. Honestly, I thought Gamrot would win. I thought Darius would stuff a lot of Gamrot's takedowns in the first, you know, mid first uh, first round. But I think eventually, you know, because Gamrot is so freaking determined, he's not. He's similar to Khabib. Khabib never. Khabib seldomly gets the takedown on the first takedown. He's a guy who's going to constantly shoot for takedowns, shoot for takedowns, shoot for takedowns, be relentless, and he's going to get you that way. And their wrestling styles are completely different. Gamrot typically, when he gets his opponent to the ground, is go for the single leg to a high cross to a leg sweep. That's normally how he's going to get his opponent to the ground. That's his number one takedown. And that's what he was doing. And I thought eventually he was going to be able to get Darius tired, tired Darius, and be able to hold him down. But that wasn't the case, man. Darius's takedown defense is fucking formidable. He was able to stuff, I think, 15 to 20 takedowns in total, which is, dude, astronomical. And he was really putting the beating striking-wise on Gamera. He did a very good job. Every time Gamera tried to close the distance, throwing knees, throwing kicks, he rocked Gamrot with a really big right hand in that third round, which I'm shocked that Gamrot was able to recover from. So Gamrot has a very good chin, but a very impressive victory from Darius. I think after whoever's the winner between Islam and Volkanovski, I think Darius has next up. I think he 100% deserves it. And then we have O'Malley on. So this one is by far the most controversial fight on the card. And I really want to do a big deep dive into this fight. So I'm before I even get into it, I had the fight for Jan. I think most people who are MMA fighters who comment on the fight had it for Jan. Khabib is a famous video of Khabib going viral right now of him saying, how the fuck did Sean O'Malley win? Which I 100% agree on. Every single media outlet gave it for Yawn. People who are podcasters of the sport, like Luke Thomas and a bunch of other podcasters, all scored it for Yawn. Now, the only differential is some people gave Yawn 29-28. Some people gave Yawn 30-27. I'm one of those people who gave Yawn 30-27. I watched the fight twice, and I gave Yawn twice 30-27. Now, bare minimum is 29-28, but still... I think Jan was a clear victor in that fight. 
and I really want to get into it. So the first round, right? The first round, we, Jan did a very good job in applying the pressure and putting it on Sean O'Malley. Usually, the, 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 the huge issue is, is the travesty in this fight is that it wasn't five rounds. This is just one of those fights that need to be five rounds. It needs to be five rounds. We don't see the best uh, Pierre Chayon in three-round fights because he, t- he normally takes the first two rounds off. He normally, you know, his he's reading his opponent, doesn't do too much striking, doesn't do too much grappling, really just trying to get reads on his opponent, see how his opponent fights. And from there, that's when he's able to put it together and honestly just puts a master class on afterwards. Now, of course, that didn't happen in the last Sterling fight, but that's typically what we saw throughout Piotr Jan's career. That's what happens. So it's a travesty that this fight wasn't a five-round fight when it should have been a five-round fight. But it's three rounds. Jan did a very good job applying the pressure, putting on Sean O'Malley, not letting Sean O'Malley get a round or two in because Jan's taking it slow. So Jan had to fight Jan not only had to fight a three-round fight when he's so used to fighting five rounds but his style is more suited to five rounds so he had to apply the pressure and put it on Sean O'Malley so he had to fight a completely different fight one that he's not necessarily used to in my opinion I think he still won so that just goes to show you how good he is as a fighter how well rounded he is as a fighter and how good his fight IQ is but He's applying the pressure to Sean O'Malley. Striking-wise, I would say it's fairly close within that first round. I think maybe you can edge the striking for O'Malley, but Jan did get a very big takedown in that first round and did land some, some not, you know, not a lot of ground and pound, but did land some ground and pound. I think overall, Jan did the better work in that first round. Second round. I think the second round was clearly Jan's round. Clearly Jan's round. And before I even, before even continue getting into the fight, one thing, regardless if you have it for Sean, Sean O'Malley, regardless if you have it for Piotr Jan, the one thing that everyone could take away from this fight is Sean O'Malley belongs in the top of his division. He gave arguably the best in the division one of the toughest fights to date. You know, and granted, it didn't go five rounds, so we, we weren't able to see if Sean O'Malley could keep that up for round four or round five. But Sean O'Malley gave Piotrion a very, very hard fight, a very tough fight, and a very close fight. When Sean O'Malley's entire career up until this point was just him fighting cans. So he definitely deserves respect from everyone in the MMA community, regardless if you think that he won or he lost, because he put on a fucking tremendous of a performance. And he most definitely belongs, and he is most definitely top tier. So going into the fight again, round two, right? Round two, I think, is clearly Piotr Jan's round. And Sean O'Malley, I think striking-wise, it's very close to numbers as well. Sean O'Malley rocks Piotr Jan. Piotr Jan comes away and rocks Sean O'Malley right after. One thing I've noticed every single time that Sean O'Malley hurt Piotr Jan, he would have his guard down, have his hands down, and would immediately after get hit with a big shot and get rocked himself. That was something that happened you know, two, three times in the fight. Um, and maybe that's something that Sean O'Malley needs to work on. And maybe he thought, you know, Piotr was a wounded animal at that time. So he's going to, you know, put him away, wherever the case may be. But even if Piotr wounded, he's still very, very dangerous, as you can see. So O'Malley rocks him. 
Piotrowski rocks him out. He literally right after, so that kind of evens it out there. He gets a, a really good takedown. Now, normally, when you have your opponent hurt, I don't recommend going for a takedown because you have your opponent hurt. You could possibly end the fight. You're giving them time to recover. But in this instance, I thought it was brilliant that Piotr Jan took Sean O'Malley down because Piotr Jan has hurt himself. He's still rocked. He's still wobbled. Even though he just rocked Sean O'Malley, he's still wobbled. So if he were to bum rush his opponent or just to try to hit Sean O'Malley and try to put him away, he can possibly get put away himself. So knowing that he's still rocked and he just rocked his opponent, he went in for a takedown to allow him to recover. Yeah, it allowed Sean O'Malley to recover as well, but at least he's in an advantage position and got the takedown. So I think it was beautiful fight IQ in that regard for Piotr Jan. Easily Piotr Jan's round. I think he took Sean O'Malley down two times in that round and completely dominated that round. People were saying, oh, he didn't land good ground and pound. Did he land Khabib level ground and pound? No, but he did do some work. So easily his round is the second round. In the third round, I would say, again, a very close round as well. I guess you can give it striking-wise to, to Sean O'Malley because he cut Piotr Jan, which shouldn't matter at all. Just because you cut someone doesn't mean that you won the striking exchanges because it's just a cut. You can get a cut for literally anything. Uh, but I do think he outstruck Piotr Jan numerically. And again... You shouldn't take numericals as the end-all, be-all in regards to if a fighter did better striking than another one. A good example of this, Chito Vera, Rob Font. Rob Font substantially outstruck Chito Vera, but Chito Vera was still almost put Rob Font away in every single round. He won a more damage to strike, so he won the round. So just because you have a high numerical value doesn't mean that those are all damaging shocks and that you won that round and you did the most damage. You just won numerically, but it doesn't mean that you won all the striking exchanges. So with that being said, Sean O'Malley did have high numerical striking than Piotr on the third round. I think as far as damage-wise, it was right about even. Uh, Piotrion did land a trip, which should have counted as a takedown, but it didn't. But land a trip, land a takedown, and was hitting Sean O'Malley with some really good ground and pound for a mid and some change. So I think that round easily goes to Piotrion. So I gave it three rounds Piotrion. I think you can argue giving Sean O'Malley the third round. That's the one that's always up for debate for everyone, but... Sean O'Malley winning this fight doesn't make sense. If this was judged by 1FC's rule set, I think that Piotrion would have rightfully won the fight. But since it wasn't, I don't know what the fuck the judges were looking at, and they gave it to Sean O'Malley. So it sucks that Piotrion arguably got robbed for the Aljamain Sterling fight, clearly got robbed for this fight, and he just taking two losses in the fights that most people would say he didn't deserve losses in to begin with. And I know Dana White is not going to contest this or talk about this too much because it fits the UFC's narrative. Sean O'Malley is a very, very popular you know, fighter for the UFC. He makes a lot of money for the UFC. So having him fight for the title next is beneficial for the UFC. So they're not angry at this at all. This is the... This was a, the best case scenario for them, to be honest with you. 
And now we have Aljamain Sterling against Aljo. And it, it, the, there really isn't too much to go over in this fight for the simple fact that it ended in a mishap industry, injury, injury, man. Sorry for the fucking stutter there, but it ended in an injury. And it sucks for Aljo because he won the, he won the belt through a, a DQ, which everyone was shitting him about. Then he defended his title against Young, which everyone's saying that, you know, he, he Young got robbed, even though it was a very close fight, and I personally thought Aljamain won. And then, you know, people are saying that, oh, you only beat Dillashaw because he got injured. So it sucks that this is his title reign, and this is what the shit he has to deal with. But Aljamain did his job. At the end of the day, Aljamain did his job. He went out there and he did his job. Regardless of if his opponent got injured or not, doesn't matter. That doesn't matter for Aljamain Sterling if his opponent gets injured. His job in there is to go in there, defend his belt, and take the belt home with him, which is exactly what he did. Is this the way that he would have wanted to do so? Absolutely not. I know the competitor in him wouldn't have wanted this to happen. But it happened. It is what it is. He did his job at the end of the day. And the one thing that is just, just, it's just so shocking to me is, so the fight, TJ Dillashaw was saying that he was having issues with his left arm the entire fight camp that popped out nearly 20 times out of the socket and that it was already compromised. And literally the first few seconds of the fight, Aljamain Sterling gets a takedown, catches a kick, gets a takedown, which is exactly what I say how he would get the takedown in my last episode of podcast. And right there, it pops out of the socket. So Dillashaw is clearly in pain. Aljamain has him mounted for the entire first round. Arguably, you can argue it's a 10-8 round. Aljamain lands some vicious ground and pound. Nearly put TJ away for a nigga choke, but TJ survives it somehow, gets back to his corner. His team massages it back into place fairly easily, which is pretty shocking to me. I think they didn't do anything too wrong in letting it continue. I think once it would have popped out the second time, it should have been stopped either way. Even It should have been stopped either way if it popped out the second time. Thankfully, it got stopped because, you know, Aljamir was putting a beating on him. Um, so it wasn't going to continue of him being popped out of the socket nonstop. But in the second round, it pops out of the socket again. TJ's invisible pain. Uh, Aljo is putting it on TJ, and the fight was called stops. Now, of course, would the fight have went like this if TJ didn't have this injury? No, it would have been far more competitive. But at the end of the day, that's what happened. A lot of people were saying Aljamain was being a dick, targeting the shoulder. He was throwing kicks to the shoulder, punching the shoulder, trying to, you know, put pressure on that shoulder. Is it a dick move? Honestly, I'm not going to say it is because that's there's no mercy. No mercy. Ray Longo was screaming at the corner, no mercy, and that's it's a fight at the end of the day. you got to defend your belt any means necessary. And he did it legally. Every strike that he threw, even though it was to the shoulder of an injured you know, opponent, it was still legal. So he did nothing wrong in my eyes. He did what he needed to defend the belt. And it just sucks that you know Dillashaw had to come back out of um, suspension, honestly, to get a victory over Sanhagen that he didn't deserve. I think Sanhagen got robbed. And it's kind of like the universe corrected itself <laughs> in some uh, twisted, cruel fashion. 
And then we have the all, the main event, Oliveira against Islam. And Oliveira made a lot of mistakes in this fight. Then again, Oliveira tends to fight a little reckless. Tends to fight a little reckless, as we all know. But he made a lot of mistakes in this fight. And in the first round, Oliveira, you know, he comes out the gates hot. He's put, He's really applying the pressure to to uh to islam he gets in too close he goes in for a clinch initiates it he ends up on his back tries to get a triangle didn't go through islam didn't land too much ground and pound on him it wasn't like you know khabib level ground and pound could be level beating no it's not the case islam is really not that kind of fighter anyway but he was able to really neutralize Oliveira's ground game now in mma or in jiu-jitsu in general to be very good off your back is extremely rare and extremely difficult. And it's going to be even more difficult in high-level MMA. But Islam did such a good job neutralizing Oliveira. And he didn't just have a full mount. It wasn't like he was just had him full mounted and was playing in his guard. He had his position legs over the hips so that it's hard for Oliveira to move. He had his head pressed against Oliveira's head so that it's hard for him to maneuver. Towards the end of the round, Islam moved him to against the cage to make it even more difficult for Charles Oliveira to maneuver or to throw a triangle like he did earlier in the round. He did a very good job just completely neutralizing Oliveira's guard. Now in the second round, Oliveira tries to do that jumping switch knee, which he's very known for. Um... He gets clipped. He gets dropped. Now, in most cases, when Oliveira gets clipped and dropped and he has his legs in the air, basically inviting the person to come into his guard so it gives him a little time to recover, most people aren't going to jump into Oliveira's guard because Oliveira is dangerous for most people. Literally, 99% of the division is not going to go into Oliveira's guard because you don't want to play around in that guy's guard. And, you know, Islam clearly felt confident enough to jump into his guard from how dominant he was in that first round. He jumps in, sinks in a, a head and arm triangle, and submits Charles Oliveira. Islam just looked fucking spectacular in there. He completely outclassed Oliveira. Possibly Oliveira's having a bad night. Who knows? At the end of the day, fucking Islam made it look easy. He made it look easy, which I was completely shocked at. I honestly had, of course, I'm, I'm eating shit right now. I'm 100% eating shit right now because I had it for Oliveira. I didn't see a clear game plan for Islam to win the fight. Oliveira was clearly the better striker. I didn't think Islam would be able to neutralize Oliveira's guard that easily or even want to play in his guard too much. And I didn't see a, a true clear path to victory for Islam. And dude, I was completely wrong. I was completely wrong. Islam dominated the fight through and through. And now the question is, who's going to be able to beat Islam? You know, I think his, the, the, possibly the best challenge is Darius because Styles make matchups or Volkanovski. I think Darius has a better shot beating Islam than Volkanovski, to be honest with you. Because Volkanovski never fought at 155, and Volkanovski never really fought a true wrestler. Yeah, he fought Chad Mendes, but that was a striking battle for the most part. You know, he never really fought someone on the caliber of wrestling as Islam or in any, you know, wrestling capacity at all. So to go up a weight class to fight a guy who has the, the arguably the best wrestling in that division, 
not an easy matchup, not an easy fight for you. So I don't know who's going to beat Islam. Gonna be honest with you, he might be champion for a very long time, but still a very, very impressive victory. And honestly, I would like to see that fight run back again, Oliveira Islam. I think that second time around would be much different. But at the end of the day, Volkanovski looked good in there. I mean, said Volkanovski looked good in there. Islam looked good in there. Now I want to go into MMA news as drama. So first up, Volkanovski opens as a heavy underdog to Islam. Literally minus 300, I mean plus 300 type of underdog, which is shocking. When you're the number one pound for pound fighter in all of the UFC and arguably the world, especially in that division, the division he reigns over, being a plus 300 underdog is fucking shocking. And honestly, I don't disagree with it. Then we have Benil Dariush. He goes on a Christian rant after the win over Gamera. He says that in Iran, the only thing that could save him from their oppression is Jesus Christ. And <laughs> here's the thing, right? You know, it's it's the, the the UFC really emphasizes freedom of speech, which I can respect. But I'm a I'm a Christian myself, right? I'm a Christian myself, through and through. I believe Jesus Christ is the I believe he's our Lord and Savior. But the one thing I don't like about Christians or I don't like about religious people in general is pushing their religion, their agenda on others. Now, if someone asks for it, asks for your ideas, your philosophies, the principles you stand on and wants to know more about it, then that's fine because they're inviting it into the conversation. But for you to go into a Muslim country and just start spewing Jesus... I'm just not a fan of that because you're pushing your religious ideals on others. That's unwarranted. It's the same way if someone who is Islamic try to talk to me about Islam and try to convert me and says I should, I should, I should have nine wives and how, you know, Muhammad wants me to have nine wives. Again, again, I'm being a cliche and trying to be funny here, making a joke. But the point still stands. Someone who is, you know, is who is Islamic. Muslim, sorry, tries to to talk to me about being Muslim, how I should convert. I'm going to be annoyed because they're pushing their agendas on me. Same vice versa. If they're a hardcore Muslim and I'm pushing my Jesus agendas on them, they have the right to be annoyed as well because who am I to push my religious ideals on them? So I understand the freedom of speech aspect of it all, but at the end of the day, it's still a dick move. Darius shouldn't have done it. It's still a dick move. And it, 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 really, it really wasn't a cool thing to see. But the man has balls. To go into fucking Abu Dhabi and start talking Jesus and talk about Iran too, you got to have some some nuts on you. Then we have Sterling downplaying Cejudo's title reign. He's saying that Cejudo's always talking shit about him, Aljamain Sterling, but Cejudo's title reign is shit. And he never really defended it against anyone. And listen... You can say what you want about Algermain, but this one's kind of true. This one is true. Granted, for 125, right? Let's look at Cejudo's title reign. He beats Mighty Mouse. I thought he lost that one very close fight. I think it should have got run back. But he beats Mighty Mouse. And he defends against TJ Dillashaw, which a respectable defense. A very respectable defense. DJ was a champion. At, I mean, TJ was champion at 135. He came down in weight. Cejudo put him away. A little early, but Cejudo put him away. So, 
I respect that title defense 100%. Now, he did have someone in Davis and Figueredo who he could defend it against, and Alex Moreno as well. I would have favored Tahula to beat both of them, but he didn't defend his title there. He went up to 135, right? Cejudo, I mean, TJ, he didn't beat the true champion Cejudo because TJ was gone. So they had him fight Marlon Moraes, who was number one contender at that time. Very good fight. Cejudo was getting put on him for the first round, but then Marlon just falls apart, completely falls apart. Cejudo wins the belt. And then the person who was supposed to defend it afterwards, defended to afterwards, was to Piotr Jan, who I think that would have been a very, very close fight. I possibly would have favored Cejudo as well, but who knows? We'll never know. And he doesn't do that. He calls out Jose Aldo, says that Jose Aldo deserves a title shot. I think he was just doing that for the fact that he has, Jose Aldo has name value. That falls apart, so he calls out Dominic Cruz, who's been retired for four years, who had no business being in the octagon with him, who quite frankly, honestly, really didn't deserve the title shot, but calls out Dominic Cruz because Dominic Cruz says he's a big name and, you know, his his name still holds value if you get a win over him because at the time he was the featherweight, he was a bantamweight goat. So he beats a very old and shouldn't be fighting him, Dominic Cruz, and that's how, that's his title reign. So you can't shit on his title reign, to be honest with you. Yeah, he had a respectable defense at 125. His defense at 135 wasn't really respectable. And at the end of the day, you didn't fight the best of your division. You didn't defend your belt against the best of the division. And it wasn't like he beat the guys and was defending it all over again. You know, the, 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 a similar situation that um, Style Bender finds himself in. But you had fresh contenders who would have made amazing matchups and you didn't defend your belt and you decided to walk away. So I think that the criticism for Cejudo's title reign is 100% warranted. Now, Dana White says Cotter needs at least six months to use testing before his return. I 100% agree with this. I think that it's a fucking travesty that Yusada wasn't testing him at all up until this point. I don't understand why. Um, but he most definitely needs to be tested before going back into the octagon. And let's be frank here. Six months is enough time for all the steroids and all the PEDs. If he's using, if he's using, not saying he's using, I'm saying it gives him enough time for the steroids and PEDs to flush out of his system and he'll be able to go back into the octagon. So... I agree. I think he should be tested. Now, Manuel Fuhrer wants Alexa Grasso next. Um, Manuel Fuhrer wants to fight Alexa Grasso before fighting for the belt with Valentina Shevchenko. And I agree. I, I, I agree. Granted, Manuel Fuhrer has a very good running up until this point. And... I think that she just beat the number one contender very thoroughly in Jakagian. Possibly she could have just asked for the title shot right then and there. I think she could have and it was warranted. But I don't see a problem of her fighting Grosso to find a number one contender spot against Shevchenko. Then we have Yuana Jacek wants to help manage fighters. Says that so many are 
you know, there there's so many rats in MMA manager wise who's trying to pull one over on the fighters, which I agree. I will 100% agree. I'm not going to argue there. But my thing is, are you qualified to be a manager? That's my thing. Are you qualified to be a manager? If you don't have the qualifications to be a manager, you don't know anything about the aspects of the job, and you're managing fighters, then it doesn't make any sense, you know, because you're, you're just not qualified for the job. Just because you're a good fighter doesn't mean you're a good coach or a good manager or a good judge or a good referee. So I just personally believe that people who, are, who should be managers in the UFC or in MMA in general should have some type of law degree. That's like the bare minimum for every other big name sport like baseball, basketball, etc. Now we're in the Petri Predictions portion of the podcast, and we have Calvin Cater against Arnold Allen. And this is a very good fight, very entertaining fight. The card itself is kind of a dud, but then again, like I always say, the card looks like a dud. It could be really good. Usually those are the cards are very good, so I'm going to be excited seeing it either or. Um, God, this is such a good fight. It could really go either way. Striking wise, I favor I favor Calvacator. I think Calvacator's boxing is more clean and more crisp. And I think if it was an all-out striking battle, I favor Calvacator. Arnold Allen, I think, would have to mix it up and make it dirty. He's gonna have to have Calvacator on the back foot. He's gonna have to apply that pressure to Calvacator. He's gonna have to utilize some grappling, make it dirty boxing, make it a gritty fight. If he just sits there and tries to outbox Calvin Cater, it's not going to happen. He's going to have to make it gritty um, if he's if he's going to want to win this fight. So if he fights Cater's fight, he's going to lose. If he makes a gritty, dirty fight, I believe Arnold Allen has a very good chance of winning. I personally is going to, I'm personally going to give it to Cater. I'm having Cater to win by unanimous decision. That's why I have. And now the hot take for the week. And this is, should Dillashaw retire? We know that Dillashaw was saying beforehand that he had his freaking left shoulder dislocated 20 times during fight camp. Well, he's ex- were he exaggerating? Maybe. But at the end of the day, I-, I guarantee you, if it's popping out that often, that left shoulder was popping out a lot and is most definitely compromised. So should he retire? That's the question. And honestly, I think he should. I think he should because you have to understand something. When you dislocate a bone or you dislocate a shoulder especially, once you do it once, it's extremely easy for it to happen over and over and over again. It's like jamming a finger as well. Like I jammed my thumb playing basketball years ago. And now if I ever play basketball, it jams for the littlest thing. But this time around... It would jam. It's not like a really bad jam that's fucking is in pain for 10 minutes. It will be in pain for a minute or two and go away and be perfectly fine after. But for a shoulder, especially a dislocation, it's a little bit tricky. So if you're constantly having your shoulder dislocated like that, it's compromised. It will never be the same ever again. It's going to keep getting dislocated over and over and over again. There's no way you can effectively win a fight that way. If you get surgery, 
he's already 36, 37 years old. If he gets surgery, he's going to be out for another year or two. He'll be 38, extremely old for the division. He's already old for a division now. If he's 38, he's going to be even more old for a division. And he's going to have less mobility in that left arm. Way less mobility in the left arm. They're going to do surgery on it to make sure that it's extra tight so that it doesn't pop out again. So at that point, you got to weigh the pros and cons. You're already 38 years old. You're already champion twice at Bantamweight. You, you did everything there is to do in division, and honestly, probably in the sport. You're going to be suffering from a constant injury that's, you know, that's going to be a persistent issue over and over and over again. Just retire at that point. Like, you, you, you're, you were able to come out of suspension, come back and fight for the belt. Granted, it didn't go your way and it was unfortunate, but you still fought for the belt. You know, you, you still had a, you still put on a good run. You're still a two-time champion at bantamweight. You're still, you know, one the the you're arguably one of the best bantamweights ever. Like you can argue, the only two people you can really argue are Cruz and Dillashaw as of right now. So you know you did everything there is to do in the sport at this point. There's no there's no real reason for you to fight anymore, especially if there's going to be a constant issue, because now you have to look at your way of life outside of the octagon. So if you're if you fuck up your left arm to the point where it's like you can't lift your arm over your head anymore. What was the point, you know? What was the point of trying to continue with an injury like that? There is no point. So I think that, uh, I think he should give it up, man. I honestly think he had a good run. He would go down as easily, you know, like top 20 fighters of all time, top 25. Um, he will most definitely get into the UFC Hall of Fame. That's 100% without question. But I think it's time for him to, to give it up. But that is episode 26 of R6 MMA Talk, the fight after the fight with me, your boy, Noah Petrie. Towards the end there, I started to speak more slowly and speak in a lower tone for the fact that it's 1 o'clock in the morning and I'm recording now. And I don't want to speak loudly and be a dick to my neighbors because I wasn't aware of the time. So I'm trying to be respectful to them as well and not just, you know, fucking screaming on the microphone. Um, which, when you have the headphones in and you're talking to the microphone, you tend to, you know, speak loudly. So... During halfway through, if he's like, yo, why is he like almost at a whisper? That's the reason why. So I got to get better at time management and recording at reasonable hours. Usually I record this late because I know it's going to be quiet, so I don't have to do too much editing after. But it is what it is. So episode 26, episode 26 of R6 MMA Talk. Sorry, I got this 26 and the 6 jumbled there. But if you want to find me on Instagram, is Noah underscore A underscore Petrie. On Twitter, Noah Petrie R6. Of course, this podcast is on all major podcast platforms: Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. The list goes on and on and on. We are going to YouTube fairly soon. It won't be visual, just audible. Um, eventually, I would want visual as well, so you guys could see me talk my shit. And that would be, you know, probably next year, next coming months, but. I hope you guys enjoy the fights next weekend. Bye.